All right, Hebrews chapter 8 is where we are as we uh, continue our journey through the book of Hebrews. And as you arrive in Hebrews chapter 8, the writer says in verse 1, Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. And so as we arrive now to the 8th chapter, we've spent 7 chapters uh, going through this letter, and you guys know by now that the theme of the book is Jesus is better. We see that word coming up over and over again. Jesus is better. And the writer has gone to great lengths to communicate what he is better than. Chapter 1, verse 1, he says Jesus is better than prophets. He goes on to say he is better than angels in chapter 1 and 2. Chapters 3 and 4, he's better than Moses and Joshua. And then as he transitions to chapters 5 through 7, we see Jesus being Translate, being shown is better than Abraham and the high priests. And so we're now in this spot where it, the message is being driven home that he is better than the high priest, but the idea is he is better than everything. Anything we can ask, think, or imagine, he is better than that thing. And it doesn't mean that these things were bad. The priests, the prophets, these were mouthpieces of God. The angels were messengers of God. Moses was given the law by God, they were all good, but they weren't the best. They didn't have supremacy, and all these things pointed to something better, that being Jesus. And so we continue in verse 1. Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. And so we note that Jesus is not just simply better than the high priest, but he is, in fact, our high priest. He is our high priest. Now, why is that so important? Why do I need to know that he is my high priest? Well, because the reality is I need an intermediary. I cannot appear in my own righteousness before the true and living God. At least for me, I'm what you call a sinner. I've got some sin issues. There may be those of you that don't think you do. You probably got bigger problems if you think you're not in that camp. But the reality is I cannot appear before the true and living God in my own righteousness. Isaiah says, on my best day, my righteousness is filthy rags. And the PG-13 translation of that is a feminine hygiene cloth. Like that's how bad a filthy rag is. That's the best I can do. That's me on my best day. That's my righteousness. But what Isaiah 61 says is through Christ, I receive a robe of righteousness. It's not my righteousness any longer. It's now the righteousness of Christ Jesus through his blood, his perfect work. He now gives me his righteousness and then I can appear before the Father. In fact, what we read in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16 is now because of the work of Christ, I have access that before I didn't have access to the throne of grace. But now because of the work of Christ, I can appear in my robe of righteousness and I can crawl right up on my dad's lap. I can go to him in my time of need. Any time I have need, I can go to him. And I have lots of needs, which means I can have lots of access. And so here's Jesus doing this priestly work, being our intermediary, the one to give us his righteousness and bestow that upon us so that we can now have access to the throne of grace. Now verse 2, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. 
For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law. And so the high priest had two main functions, you might recall. They were there to make intercession for the people to God. So the high priest's two jobs were to represent uh, the people to God and God to the people. And so here in this picture, he's saying Jesus is now a representative of us to God. He can represent us to him. But he had to have these certain criteria met in order for him to be our high priest. First, he had to be human. And we noticed that he was human. We're getting ready to celebrate Christmas, that time of year where we celebrate the birth of Christ. And so he was, in fact, human. He also had to be compassionate. What we noted as we've studied through Hebrews is he was compassionate. He was sympathetic. He had been tempted in every way while without sin that we were also tempted. And so he can look upon our sinful state and go, yeah, I understand. The temptation is tough. He was compassionate. But then finally he offered a sacrifice. And this is important to note because he offered the most perfect sacrifice. He gave of himself. (laughs) He gave himself over. And so he is different than any of the Levitical priests because over and over again they were working, constantly sacrificing, constantly offering sacrifices. But when they would have feasts and festivals, there would be so much sacrifice happening on the Temple Mount that they said the, the brook Kidron, which is directly below the Temple Mount, would flow with blood. You can imagine the scene and the Levites working over and over again to atone for the sins of the people. It sounds messy, Because our sins are that messy. They're that grotesque. But here's Christ. He's not working like a Levite. What we notice in verse 1 of chapter 8, he is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is over and over again through the New Testament seated at the right hand of the Father. Why? Because the work is finished. This is why he says in John chapter 19, verse 30, to tell us die. It is finished, paid in full. The work is complete. No longer do you and I have anything to offer. Jesus has done it all. And so he is able to be seated at the right hand of the Father because the work is completed. Now verse 5. As he's talking now about the tabernacle, he says in verse 5, who served the copy and shadow of the heavenly things as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle For he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. A direct quote from uh, Exodus. If my clicker gets there, I believe it's 25 verse, well, hang on. Exodus 25, wait for it, verse 40. My clicker slowed down here. All right. So what we see is God instructing Moses to build the tabernacle. Now, what you'll note in this verse is that this was very important in Scripture because the tabernacle was actually a pattern for what the heavenly scene looked like. If you read through Revelation chapter 4, as John is translated up into heaven, what he sees is the heavenly scene. It looks very, very familiar to what God gave Moses to construct the tabernacle like. Now, why would this be so important? Well, when you read through the Old Testament this next year on your Bible study together reading plan, all together, um, as we go through it, you're going to note chapter after chapter after chapter about the construction of the tabernacle. And for many of you, you're going to be like, ugh, one more tabernacle chapter. Why so much detail about the tabernacle? 
And the truth is that when you look through the Old Testament, there are 52 chapters dedicated to the construction of the tabernacle or the implements to be used in the tabernacle. You know how many on creation? Two. We spend all this time debating creation. God says, I'm going to show you what's really important. He gives the real estate to the tabernacle. But why? Because it was a model, a picture of the heavenly scene, a picture of the eternal. And so here in the earthly scene, we see high priests constantly offering sacrifices at the tabernacle. They're offering a kofar or a covering, an atonement. And one time a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur, and he would offer the blood of sacrifice, uh, drip it on the Ark of the Covenant to make atonement for the people. But the problem with it is, the next year they had to do the same thing. The kofar never lasted. It was also a picture, a type, a shadow pointing to the real thing. Now, a fun little fact, you realize that Jesus, the Son of God, the Mashiach, never one time set foot in the temple. He never went into the Holy of Holies. Now, for some of you, you're like, wait a minute, I thought Jesus taught at the temple. He taught in the temple courts. He taught in the court of the Jews, in the court of the Gentiles, but he was not uh, able to set foot into the temple because he wasn't a Levite. He wasn't uh, in the lineage of Aaron, so he never went into the Holy of Holies. But what's more interesting about that is here he is in the court of the Gentiles. He is amongst the people. He is tabernacling with the people. John chapter 1 verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word is tabernacled. Jesus came for a specific purpose, to tabernacle, to be with the people. God desired to tabernacle with the people in Exodus. This is why he gave Moses the plan. He wanted to be there in the middle of the camp, a place where heaven and earth would actually connect there together and they could be in the presence of God. It was like a, a Holy Spirit hotspot. They could go and be connected where their sin had separated them, God had made a way through the blood, through the sacrifice to reconnect. Now here's Jesus. He is tabernacling among them. He is right there in the midst of them. But what is just as beautiful about that is John will later, you know, John the Baptist will later say in the Gospel of John, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was not only the tabernacle, he not only had the very presence of God, he, he had the Holy of Holies right there in him. He had God's presence in him, but he was also the sacrifice that we needed for our sins to not be atoned for, but dealt with for all of eternity. He was our propitiation, our payment that turned away wrath. Now we continue in verse 6. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry. Inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. 4, verse 7, that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. So the idea is, if the first covenant had been without fault, then there would be no need for the second covenant. Uh, I'm going to admit to you right now uh, something that I don't share with everybody. Uh, I'm a Colts fan. It's true. My whole life, I've been a Colts fan from the days of Jim Harbaugh, go Jimmy H, almost getting us there to Peyton Manning. And now I'm sitting here and we have hired an analyst as our coach who had never been a head coach before and uh, we're awful. 
But some of you can relate. You're Bears fans, so it's way worse for you. Uh, but th- the reality is for many of us, uh, we've not experienced year after year of winning. And there are a few of you Patriots fans that probably lie and say you love the Patriots, but I doubt that. But the point of this is you could imagine if my Colts, this is a stretch, if my Colts were a dynasty. I mean, year after year, we were winning Super Bowls. And after winning multiple Super Bowls in a row, uh, Jim Ursay would come out and go, you know what? Uh, I'm just going to fire the whole staff. Letting them all go. We are doing way too much winning. I am tired of the winning. Enough already. We are going to bring on people that will not win from here on out. And you would say, that's ridiculous. Like, why would anybody do that? But this is what the writer is saying. If the first covenant was a winner, if it won time and time again, then there would be no need for a second covenant. There would be no need to bring on another staff. And so here we see the old covenant was not able to bring them to salvation. Now it doesn't mean the old covenant wasn't good. In fact, the old covenant, the law, was perfect at what God intended for it to do. Uh, Paul would write in Romans chapter 7, verse 7, concerning the law, he says this, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would have known covetousness. I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. What Paul is saying is he wouldn't have recognized or known his own sin unless the mirror of the law was able to reflect it. He was able to see his sin in the law. The law pointed it out. It brought it up. The problem with the law is it could not save. There was no winning with the law. We needed the Savior. And we continue in verse 8. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And so we see now the promise of this new covenant, which is actually an Old Testament promise communicated through the pen of Jeremiah. But what we find is in the Old Covenant, God had given them all of these wonderful promises. But the promises were all based upon their obedience. Now, a little covenant side note. I believe in the Old Testament, there are eight different covenants given. And each covenant is given to the Jewish people. There's actually no covenants given to Gentiles. Now, wait a minute. Does that mean we don't get to take part? No, what Paul would say is we actually get to take part because we're a wild olive branch. We're we're grafted into the olive tree, a part of the new covenant, but the foundations of which are still based in uh, Judaism. And so we see that this uh, wild olive branch gets grafted in after it's rejected by the Jews, but the the covenants were given to the Jewish people, and the promise to them is uh, wonderful things, blessings for them through obedience. And yet over and over and over again, they do not obey. They do not do what they said that they would. They don't follow what God has given them to do. And as a result, God is forced. He has no other choice but to obey. And I think it's important to note that Isaiah chapter 28 verse 21 mentions that judgment for God is his strange work if you read through the 
original King James. Uh, our new King James says it's his unusual act that judgment for God is not a go-to move. He is not looking to judge. In fact, Jesus over and over again made it clear he came to bring life, not to pass judgment in his first coming. And so here's God in this spot where he has no other choice but to judge because they would not follow the law. They wouldn't follow the rules. They wouldn't be obedient. And as a result, we get the new covenant given in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, which I pointed out is an Old Testament promise of the new covenant given 600 years before Christ. And so this beautiful promise is given, and we're going to continue as we read through it. Verse 8, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers, in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. And so Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 1, Moses is going to repeat the entire law to them, essentially. That's what Deuteronomy is. It's a, it's a summary, it's a repeating, uh, hence the name of the book. But as Moses begins this a repeating of the law. He says in chapter 4 of Deuteronomy, verse 1, Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I teach you to observe, that you may live and go in and possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers is giving you. And so the Old Covenant says, Do this and live. Now, you may read into that and realize that the opposite is also true if you don't do this, you will die. Now that seems very, very heavy-handed. But the reality of the Old Covenant is it was all based upon the law. It was based upon my obedience. It was based upon my ability to keep the law. It was based upon my successes. And over and over again, people said, yes, we can. We will do it. In Exodus 24, verse 3, they say, everything you said, Moses, we're going to do it. And then they did not. <laughs> they did it a little bit, and then they just immediately uh, fell away. But they, like a two-year-old, screamed, we can do it. We know that we can. Verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. It's critical for us as we understand Christianity in this New Testament life that we get to live that the new covenant is not an external thing. It is an internal thing. That the law try to put and apply pressure to the outside, externally applying pressure to get us to change, and yet we did not change. But the new covenant is actually internal. It changes us from the inside out. And so as a result, here's the beautiful part. I can now do things because he has given me the ability to. By his grace, I can now do things. So if the Lord has put something on my heart. It's no longer my own flesh that has to go out and perform it. It's actually the grace that he's given me. He gives me then the ability to go out and do the thing that he's put on my heart to do. It's a beautiful promise. And as I mentioned to you last week, what I love about this is no longer is it dependent upon my worthiness. Because I don't know about you, but I am not 
worthy. Not even close. Not even a little bit. But it's not based upon my worthiness. It's based upon his willingness. He was willing to give his life for me. And as a result, I now, by his grace, God's riches at Christ's expense, I can now go and do the things that he's put on my heart to do. Now, we're coming up on that time of year where resolutions are going to start happening, right? If you're like me, I've already made a preemptive attack on the New Year's resolution. I am determined to lose some LBs. I'm going to drop some weight. Look out, here I come. And in my mind, I've already developed a plan of attack. After I get done gorging through the holidays, I'm I'm getting rid of it, shedding the baby fat. But uh, what you'll notice is many people will make a similar resolution. And the why and the Planet Fitness and all the gyms around here, man, they are packed in January and February. You can hardly find a parking spot. You can't get on that machine of death, that elliptical thing that tries to kill you when you're on it. Uh, you can't get a trip. You can get on nothing. But uh, just go to those same places in June and July. And what you'll find is all of a sudden machine of death is open. Uh, there's nobody around. Uh, the treadmill, easy to get onto. And, and so the reason is that people don't have enough resolve. We quit. We stop at whatever we have in our flesh decided we're going to do. And by the way, the same thing is true spiritually. That for many of us, we come up with these great spiritual resolutions. These eternal resolutions. I'm going to do this. I'm going to, by God, read my Bible. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to do more. And the resolutions in and of themselves, they aren't bad. The problem is we decide these things all in our flesh. And then foolishly, we try to accomplish them in our flesh and finish them in our flesh. And then when they don't happen, we feel condemned. And what God is saying is, It was about his worthiness, not mine. It's about his willingness, not mine. And so in the new covenant, it's his thoughts, his word, his spirit is how we actually achieve these things. It's how we get from point A to point B, not by our flesh. Now verse 11, he continues saying, None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. And so what we see is now the Spirit is the thing that communicates to the heart. The Spirit is actually writing on the flesh of our heart what the Lord would have us to do. For uh, most of my life early on, I spent in church, and I'm thankful for that foundation. It was Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and uh, at an early age came to know Christ. But then uh, as I uh, proceeded through my life and then eventually uh, get married, and my wife and I, we, we go hard for Jesus again in our early 20s. I mean, we get in, plugged in a new church, and we're serving, and we're going, and we're making the effort, and the next thing you know, we get completely burnt out. I mean, burnt out in every conceivable way. We were going for it in our flesh. As much as we knew how to do, we were trying to get after it for Jesus, but we just didn't have it in us to continue. And so as a result, uh, we fell away. We walked away. We let life get in the way, or maybe death, as it were, got in the way of our journey with Christ. And so we just quit. And as I was thinking about that, I remember that when I first came back to Christ after we moved down to Farmington, 
I was thinking back to those days when we were serving and going hard, and I'm like, why didn't the pastor ever reach out? Why didn't any of the leaders ever reach out and say, hey, get your butt back into church? I mean, I, you know, I'm used to being talked to like that, like, get it together, man, come on. But the thing is, they never did. And what I realized is, it wasn't their job. Their job wasn't to get on me and to get after me, to chastise. Because internally, through the Holy Spirit, I knew what I was supposed to do. I knew right where I was supposed to be. I just flat out refused to do it. He had communicated to my heart what was right. And this is what it looks like to live under the new covenant. It's not being chastised or being condemned any longer. It's actually God giving us freedom from the rules that we then get to follow the rules. The old covenant says, do this and you'll live. And what the new covenant promises, live this and you'll do. That as we accept Christ and he begins to change us from the inside out, we begin to live. Now I want to go do. I desire to go do things. It's a get to, no longer a have to Christianity. And so as a result, we then live a spirit-led life and the relationship changes. It becomes dynamic. When, when the spirit whispers, hey, go talk to that person. Reach out and text them. Just uh, have a little conversation. As you begin to be spirit-led and being willing to be divinely interrupted, that's where you have things on your mind you think you must do, and then God sends an interruption your way. We allow those things to take place because those interruptions lots of times are from the Lord. He's redirecting us. It's an exciting and a dynamic life. Now, Fast forward in the story as I come back to know Christ and we're now in southeast Missouri and the Lord has called me into ministry and he's put it on my heart to teach the Bible. I was excited. I mean, he is writing stuff on my heart. Like, I felt like it was going to explode out of my chest. And so I scheduled a meeting with my pastor and we have lunch together. And I'm like, I've got this call. What do I do? Where can I go? I'm ready. I'm going to quit everything. I'm going all in for Jesus. And at this point, the, the business that had first failed was now taken off, and I had dollar trees to build all over the Midwest. And I'm like, I'm just going to scrap it all. I'm going for Jesus. And what he told me, it was so impactful. He looked across from me at the table, and he said, you're an idiot. <laughs> what? <laughs> I'm, I'm an idiot? Like, what do you mean? He's like, you've got a family to support. Now, thankfully, he didn't. Uh, just tell me I'm an idiot and stop there. He said, here's the deal. You keep trying to separate the sacred from the secular and there's no separation. You want to have the Jesus pocket over here that you're going hard for and, and you forget that it's all blended together in God's economy. There's no difference. And so he took me to Exodus chapter 4, verse 2. And in this spot, what he shared was, here's Moses who had been running from the Lord, running from what he was called to do. 80 years now he's been running. So at this point, I'm 35. So I haven't been running quite 80 years. I felt pretty good about me. So he'd been running from 80 years, and now he's in the middle of the wilderness, and he's talking to a tree. He's talking to a tree that's on fire, just continually on fire. And the Lord tells him, take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. And Moses, his heart's on fire, his the tree's on fire. Everything's on fire. He's like, Lord, what do I do? Where do I go? I'm ready to go hard for you. And here's what the Lord asked him. The Lord said to him, 
what is in your hand? And Moses replied, a rod. That doesn't seem like the most impactful verse probably to read. But for me, it was everything I needed to hear. Because what was in my hand was a rod. The Lord had given me an opportunity. He'd given me a people to speak to. Contractors need Jesus just a little bit. And so the opportunity to reach people, the opportunity to listen to Bible teaching as I was traveling all over the Midwest, God had put into my hand all these opportunities and all I could see was, I've got to quit and go hard for Jesus. What he was saying, oh, you just got to go hard for Jesus. <laughs> just go for it. The Lord communicating to Moses, what is in your hand? And for many of you, that's the spot you're in. How do, how do I make an impact? How do I step into this situation? How do, how do I have any kind of influence in the area that I'm in? And the Lord's saying, what is in your hand? What have I already given you to be able to do the work? And then usually the next thing that gets said is, yeah, but I don't know enough. I don't know enough scripture. I don't know enough about the Bible. I can't possibly do that. Acts chapter 17, verse 60, or verse 6, excuse me. In this spot in Acts, and we studied through this probably a year ago, but in this place, uh, the Apostle Paul is being uh, chased out of all kinds of places, and he's eventually uh, landed himself in uh, Thessalonica, and he ends up here, and it's, it's said in verse 6, but they did not find them. They're looking to throw Paul and uh, Timothy and Silas and everybody into jail, and they dragged Jason and some of the brethren to the rulers of the city, and they cried out, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. That's the part I wanted you to catch. You see, these people that are being sought out to be jailed and perhaps uh, martyred, they had turned the world upside down in this early church. They had turned the world upside down. But the question that I wanted to ask is, how much scripture do you think they had in relation to the New Testament? The answer is none. They didn't have the book of Hebrews. It wasn't written yet. They had the Hebrew Bible. That was it. They didn't have the Gospel of John and the teachings of Christ. They didn't have all of these things that we now have and hold in our possession. So how is it they were turning the world upside down when they're missing the New Testament? And the reason is the Holy Spirit had written it on their hearts. You see, when they circulated these letters, it was confirmation to what God had already communicated to their heart. He was already giving them directions, speaking to them what to do, and it was merely confirmation or explanation on the direction that they were going. I share that with you because um, I think we can have a tendency in uh, Western church and, and churches like this where we study through the Bible and we take it very seriously. So I'm going to say this, and it may sound offensive, but we often make the Trinity uh, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Bible. And that is not the Trinity. It is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't spend time in the Word. And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't 
study the word, and we shouldn't pour in, but lots of times on Sunday after Sunday or Wednesday after Wednesday, we spend pouring through scripture and arguing theology and arguing doctrine and want to make sure we get it exactly correct. And there's churches all over the area, and theologically, they are spot on, and they are dead because it is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Bible that they are worshiping. And what they are missing, what you and I need for life is breath. The spirit in the Greek is the pneuma. In the Hebrew, it is the ruach. Ruach HaKodesh is the Holy Spirit. It is the breath of life that's necessary. And so the spirit had been vanquished. The reality is they needed the Holy Spirit. We can spend all the time we want gaining knowledge, but what we will lack is wisdom, which is the application of knowledge. So knowledge by and of itself isn't bad, but it needs to be applied in our life. And the Spirit is who communicates to us in that relationship so we know how to apply it. Jesus had a similar conversation with the Pharisees in John chapter 5 where he said, you search and search the scriptures thinking that in them you'll find life, but the whole of the book, it speaks of me. They'd spent their whole life, their whole career searching the book, looking for the Messiah. Where's the Mashiach? And here he is standing right in front of them. They'd spent all their time pouring through the book and they completely ignored the author. What a shame. And so as we spend time going through the Word, I want to encourage you, the Word of God is given to us for us to confirm what He has put on our heart or correct us in the areas where we get it wrong. This is why it is sharper than any two-edged sword we studied in chapter 4. Able to separate the spirit from the flesh or the spirit from the soul. And so the Word of God rightly applied in our lives, can separate out the areas we need to correct, we need to get addressed, or confirm what God has already put on our heart. Now, for those of you who thought I was going to get done early, take that, all that in one verse. Verse 12. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. I love that. God states that he will remember no more. Do you, do you realize that God is not forgetful? He's not forgetful. He doesn't just forget things. Oop, I, for, I forgot to pick up milk, honey, like I do. God made a willing choice to forget. He made a decision to not remember any longer. And so when we consider this concept, what, what makes me want to know him more? What makes me want to, to dig in and get to know him better? What makes me want to listen to that still small voice that's speaking to me? The word that to me is key in this verse is mercy. He is merciful. He has not given me what I do deserve. That's the definition of mercy. And so as I think about how merciful he is to me, I realize that it's not... It's not hellfire and brimstone that bring us to Christ. Now for me, as a young boy, seven years old, I heard a sweaty Baptist pastor pounding on the pulpit. He was talking about hell and where I was going, and man, I made my way right up there. Like that dude scared the hell right out of me. Like I'm, I'm going for it. I don't want to go there. That's bad. But all those years later, time spent walking away, 
what actually brought me back to Christ was Romans chapter 2 verse 4 which says it's the goodness of God that draws a man to repentance. It was his goodness. It was his kindness. Because the reality, and, and this, is, this is confession time for me. Uh, I am a jerk. I just am. I, I'm telling you, I can, put it, I can hold it together on Sunday. I can look like I got it going on. I can be smiley and laughy. But when I get home, I'm uh, morose. I'm foreboding at times. If that's not a big uh, enough adjectives for you, I'm just kind of a pain to be around. I, I'm grumpy. And I don't want to be like that, but that's how I can be. And, and yet, here's the thing. Christ is merciful. He knows. He's not shocked at my struggles. He's not shocked at depression and the things that weigh us down. And so as I realize his mercy, him not giving me what I deserve, what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is it's the love of Christ that compels me. Why do we keep going? Why do we press in? It's the love of Christ. This reckless pursuit that he has for us. I'll go there and read it so I don't butcher what Paul did a great job writing. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, he says, For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus that if one died for all, and then all died, and he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. So for those of us who miss the mark over and over again, that's what sin is. It's missing the mark. It's an archery term. Or for those of us who some days, I don't know about you, I have days where I don't even try to hit the mark. Like, you know what, the mark, I don't feel like it. I'm just going to take a shot, firing off in the wind. What God says is he's going to give us mercy. And so it's not that I should be like that, but what I am amazed by is that he gives me opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. He blesses me over and over and over again. And as a result... The love of Christ compels me. The love of Christ makes this a get-to relationship, not a hat-to. He's not forcing me into anything. He's not giving me the holy headlock, making me obey any longer. He's giving me the opportunity through his mercy. Now, verse 13. In that he says, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now, what, what is becoming obsolete and is growing old is ready to vanish away. And so, as we wrap up this chapter, uh, realize with me that the book of Hebrews was most likely written around uh, 64 AD. So, 64 AD is when this letter is written. And the, the part of the struggles they were having is, should we just turn back into our traditions? Should we turn back to the temple and the altars, and the priests, and all these things were very visible to them. They were tangible. They could see what was going on. They could go in and experience the incense and all the pomp and circumstance of the temple. And their, their thought was, you know what, maybe we should just go back to those things. But do you realize that just six years later, 70 AD, Rome came in and completely obliterated everything. The temple, not one stone left upon another. No more high priestly system. The record's destroyed. They're not even sure who are Levites and who aren't. The altar torn down. 
all of it completely wiped out. A million people, Josephus says, lost their lives in Jerusalem as Rome came in and ransacked. So everything that they had put their trust in, that they were considering going back to, it was all gone. It, as verse 13 said, had grown old and was ready to vanish away. Bring all that up to say as we close. What things are you putting your trust in? What areas in your life have you began to prop up and uh, make a temple, make an altar? Uh, it maybe even looks like a good thing, but you know it's unhealthy. This is what the world does to us over and over again. It wants us to, to prop up all these things that are not going to last. The Romans are going to come in and they're going to completely destroy these things. And so for us, the challenge is not to take all of the things that we would normally lump into this category, jobs, relationships, children, sports, you, you name it, whatever it is, it has the ability to go away. It can all vanish in an instant. And so God, desiring so much better for us, wanting to protect us from that, what he says is Jesus is better. Better than all those things. In fact, I'll skip ahead to chapter 13 where he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so where all these other things are going to go away, by his mercy he has given us Jesus who is so much better. And the opportunity to be able to live a life through him. where We don't take all the things of the world and baptize them and call them good any longer, but instead we're able to look at Christ first Seek him first and his righteousness and then let all the other things come after that. And so, Father, I thank you and I praise you for challenging us to look up, to get our eyes firmly set on the eternal and not be so quick to settle for the temporary. Lord, I, I think about how many times I put people in a position in my heart and in my life that they never asked to be in. And then I'm surprised when that relationship vanishes or when I'm let down. Lord, I think about how many times I've done that with my career, with my own children, with my own bride. Put them in a position that they never asked to be in. Try to baptize it and act like it was all good. But I had just settled for less than the best. Father, help us as you love us so much to be able to take these idols down in our life, the things that we are so quick to want to prop up. You love us enough to tear them down. Father, help us as we seek you and your kingdom and your righteousness. And we let all the other stuff fade to the background. Lord, thank you that there is no separation between the sacred and the secular. And that we get an opportunity because of the places you put us to go out and be the church, to be your evangelistic outreach program, to be Jesus with skin on to the people that we get to interact with. Thank you, Lord, for that opportunity. Certainly don't deserve it. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy. In Jesus' name.